Can I tell you something that is all too often a secret but shouldn't be? (laughs) Uh, 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 Our faith, Christianity, is a happy religion. (laughs) I'm usually a little careful with that word happy because there is something which is deeper and more abiding and more, let's say, full than happiness, and that's called joy. Happiness isn't as solid. It's more fleeting. It's more prone to the times. Circumstances uh, affect it and often simply chase it away. Whereas Christians have known joy in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, and in the very face of death. And yet my statement is true, and therefore I'm going to let it stand. Our faith is a happy religion, and I think God intends it to be. Not all of life, even for those who live in the dark and difficult places in our world, is always gloomy. And when gloom recedes in those dark places, joy expresses itself in happiness. The love and joy of God overflow into his world in spite of the existence of sin. God hates sin, it's true, but he loves life. And it's his goodness uh, to people that draws us to him. And therefore, our faith is life-affirming like God is. It's not life-denying. And yet, some Christians walk about with a kind of dour face when the sun is shining, and there's food on the table, and they have plenty of good things, and they even believe in God. Why, their happiness ought to border on giddiness. But somehow they stifle it, I guess because maybe they think they're too spiritual to be happy. It has been said about one particular group of Christians that the only joy they have is the joy of not having any joy. (laughs) What a sad statement. What a sad thing. What an awful expression of our fallenness, of our sinful nature, not to rejoice in God's good God's good gifts. Such people have bought into the notion that you will not be happy if you really understand the situation. Well, I'm going to tell you, God will deal with those people in his time and in his own way, but I understand the situation, and I want to tell you what that situation is. God loves me, and God loves you, and he loved the world so much that he sent his son to save it, and death and sin have been conquered. And I've read the end of the book. We win because God wins. The devil is defeated, and he just hates all that happiness. So when he can, he'll persecute you. And if he can't do that, he will deceive you into thinking that God doesn't want you to have any joy. And when that fails, he will try to convince you that even though God wants people to be happy, he doesn't want you to be happy. You don't deserve it. And that's a lie. All of that is a lie. The devil has sold us a bill of goods, if we believe that. And there's another way in which he's done it. It's just just one of those things that that our culture has learned and uh, accepted. Maybe other parts of the world think this too. But but the devil has taught people something that's not true. They've They've taught people that Puritans were a bunch of sour pusses, but it wasn't really true. Do you know what the biggest complaint or one of the biggest complaints that their enemies had about the Puritans? They grumbled 
they have too much joy. <laughs> Isn't that something? If only they would have joined them in that. If only they'd have joined them in their happiness. Now, I understand. We're not going to be happy all the time. There are times in life when happiness just can't be when it's even inappropriate. I mean, joy is always available, and, and it is always appropriate. But then we won't always be full of joy either because of sin. Uh, not just sin out there that might persecute us, but sin in us, which robs us of our joy. And yet here's the good news, the great news. God understands. You know, he's not angry with us because our sin gets us down sometimes. I mean, unless, of course, we're being stubborn about it, like some people who, for some perverse reason, insist on holding on to their unhappiness. Uh, you, you know what I mean here, don't you? Yeah, you do. You do. You know what it's like to hold on to a bad mood, don't you? You know what it's like to wallow in the self-pity or to embrace an offended spirit. Our fallen nature feels right at home at those times. And then, too, at times like this, I, I'm not so sure that God is angry, per se, as he is disappointed. See, God wants us to embrace the life that he has given us. And it saddens him to see his children ignore all the good that he offers us. He is our heavenly father, after all, and he intends good for his children. You know that scripture reading we read? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's our God, that's what he wants to produce in every one of his children. Of course, the great problem humankind has is we want happiness our own way. God says to us, come to me and I will give you a joy that will not fade and a happiness and gladness will often fill your hearts in this lifetime, even though you may have to go through hard times. But we say, no. I, I think I know better than you what will make me happy. I think I'll go chase that. Many times it's even worse. We think God is holding out on us, that he doesn't want us to be happy, as we've already mentioned. And that's the same lie that Satan told Eve in the garden, that God was trying to keep something good from us. People will buy that or will say, then look at the Ten Commandments and all that, that's, those commandments. God doesn't want us to have any fun. And my response to them is there are only ten of them. And an entire world of things that you can do that is God is happy for you to do. And every one of those ten tells you not to do something that will hurt you deeply and hurt the people you love and hurt others around you. The Ten Commandments are the same nature as a mother telling her child not to put his hand on a hot stove. It is absolutely a lie out of the pit of hell to say that God does not want you to be happy. But he will take you through hell, figuratively speaking, if it is necessary to get you to the place where he can fill you with joy. Now, the author of the book that we're considering, if he were right here, right now, <laughs> he would have shouted amen to that last statement. Solomon 
was the wisest man to have ever lived, with the exception of Jesus Christ. And yet, in spite of all of his smarts, he did a lot of foolish things for which he and many other people paid a steep price. He learned the hard way that there is only one way to truly a truly happy life. And that way gets you ready for the next life too. And even though that wisest man, uh, that was only a man, you understand, whoever lived with him went down the wrong road, even though he did, it doesn't mean that you have to. If you learn from his mistakes, you will not only avoid all the unnecessary heartache that Solomon brought into his life, but you will also be smarter than he was, at least in some ways, right? Now, we're going to come back in a little bit, uh, a little later on this morning, to that conclusion that Solomon had come to after he had went through all those hard times because he himself is going to come back to that in his writing. But, but he doesn't come back to that idea. We looked at last week. Not yet, not until he addresses some other ways in which we humans can be foolish or go off the track. So I want you to join me, if you would please, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, where we're going to be looking at basically... Um, Verses 1 through 22. Uh, so th- the beginning of this chapter here is one of the most well-known portions of the Old Testament and maybe of the whole Bible. And, and although there were, had been earlier versions of this, in 1965, now I'm dating myself, uh, but I'm dating a lot of other people here too because you're going to recognize that. But in 1965, a music group, The Birds, made part of chapter 3. Uh, uh, popular to the rock and roll culture in a song called Turn, Turn, Turn. And no, I'm not going to sing it to you. <laughs> and you're glad that I'm not. <laughs> uh, but because of that song, people who know nothing at all about the Bible, nothing else about it, they're familiar with uh, these words. Listen. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Turn, turn, turn. <laughs> yeah, so maybe you know that song. Maybe you're familiar with those words just from that song. And, and yet many people, though they recognize the word, they, they, they don't know what it means, have never given it much thought. It all sounds so very poetic and very proper and very logical and it made for a nice song, but meaning, uh, well, I haven't really given it that much thought, they might reply. But you and I, we need to answer that question. Well, we may like nice music, but we're concerned with more than that. What does it mean? Well, we can start simply by saying that this passage is not so much advice as it is a statement of fact. And the fact is that human life has season in, seasons in it. And these seasons come upon us whether we want them to or not. 
And, and then, too, the, the seasons repeat, and they kind of overlap from generation to generation. Now, not everything that Solomon talks about here will happen to every person or even to every generation. And yet we can be sure that in this world that God has designed, these things are regularly occurring features. So much so that Solomon can say what he does in the first half of verse 15. Whatever is has already been and what will be has been before. There is a time and a season for everything which happens on the earth. So, okay, what does that mean to us? Well, the first thing we ought to realize is that we have no control over those times, those seasons. That's not our responsibility. To say it again, for emphasis, we do not control time. (laughs) Only God does. I mean, he created time. He exists outside of time. Uh, He knows the end from the beginning. He is the one who brings the seasons of life, and he's the one that sends them packing. I mean, Jesus had the ability to. I I mean, when he was here on earth, that shouldn't surprise us. He's God. Uh, He didn't make use of that attribute all the time, but he clearly belonged to him when he was here. He knew when it wasn't his time. He acted accordingly. He knew when it was his time, and he followed through. In John 13, we're told that He knows the Father put everything under his control and that he was going to leave the earth and all of that he was doing, he was going to do by his power and authority. But you and I don't know those things. We don't control time. We don't order our own death and departure. Yet it doesn't mean we're merely pawns moved about on a chessboard. You see, we're responsible for God in three ways, at least, when, we, when he brings these different seasons into our life. And they will come into your life. First, we, we ought to recognize or know the times so that we can respond appropriately. Now, so maybe you remember the story of Jesus, and, and he, he confronted the religious leaders, and he wasn't really happy with them because they were able to look up at the sky and kind of tell what the weather was going to be, but they didn't recognize the sign of the times and the sign of his coming. So as believers, we're supposed to have eyes in our head so that we can discern that God is working, even if we're not sure what he is doing, so we can live in a way that pleases him at those times. We're also supposed to, as the King James put it, redeem the time. Or as the NIV says, we make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. You see, nothing comes our way by happen chance. Everything is guided by God. Years ago, a, a friend of mine, Sam Gertz, I've told you about him before. He's a missionary in Ghana and Nigeria for 40 years. Told me about having to come off the field because he uh, had physical issues and he spent some time in the hospital and he was so discouraged because he wasn't on the field anymore and not only wasn't he on the field but he wasn't even able to serve in the church back here in the states he was just in the hospital but a man came into his room and all of a sudden Samuel I need to talk to him about God and he did And that man put his faith in Jesus Christ. And he never went home from the hospital. He he put you 
where you are today, right now. You are here to hear what you're hearing right now. God brought you here so you will hear these things and be challenged by them so when the different seasons come into your life, you'll have some idea of what's going on and how you ought to act. And then finally, we are to trust God at all times, no matter what is happening, no matter what season it is. That story of uh, Sam is an illustration. Peter tells us in the first chapter of his first letter, verses 6 and 7, In all of this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. That's one of the seasons we may have to go through. But it's not random. It's not just the whim of God. He, has, he hasn't somehow lost control of things. And Peter goes on to say, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You see that? We trust God through such times. Our faith is strengthened. And God is honored by all of that. And we don't control the times. You can say it again. It's not the, that's not our job. And it is the mark of ultimate degeneracy for someone to try to do so. The book of Daniel says about the Antichrist, he will speak against the most high and oppress his holy people, and he will try to change the set times and the laws. But that's not our purview. Only God can do that. And it shouldn't surprise us the Antichrist is because he tries to set himself up to God, as God. You know, I, I have to tell you something. Maybe this is, maybe this is little with me. Maybe, it's, maybe I'm being small. I don't know. But I sometimes wonder if that same spirit isn't present at this push to get rid of the, the B.C. and A.D. and our dates. You know, B.C. before Christ, A.D., the year of our Lord. Instead, they have now uh, BCE, before the common era, and CE, the common era. And what I want to know is what's so common about our era that wasn't common all along, except that Jesus Christ came and died and rose again. But I think people who haven't gone completely into the darkness can be guilty of that same kind of thing, just to a lesser degree. Isn't that why so many people seek fame and power or money? Isn't it an attempt to control the things which happen to them? Proverbs 18 says, The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it a wall too high to scale. And it's so interesting to me that the next, very next verse says, Before a downfall, the heart is haughty. You see, the seasons and the times are going to come. And God directs them our way. They're, they're, not, they're not just a whim. And they're not subject either to our desires or our wishes. And verse 14 tells us why he does it. I know that God does, uh, uh, that God does, everything God does will endure forever and nothing can be added to it or taken from it. And God makes the seasons, and they come with regularity in our life. It's God's work, and we can't change it. The seasons come whether we like it or not, but there is a reason for all this. 
And Solomon and I, and more importantly, God wants you to see what it is. And we see it in the rest of that verse. God does all that he does so that people will fear him. The, the things that come into our life, uh, the good things and the bad things, which we have no say over at all, which are under God's control, have a purpose. To teach us to fear God. Now, that's not a popular con- concept in our day, but I want you to understand something. God is not sadistic. He's not merely like a, 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 a trying to scare us like a, a little boy jumping out from behind a tree, right? What, what God does, he does for a reason. And, 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 and he's acting on our behalf for our sakes. You see, the fear of God, do you understand that? The fear of God is worship. It may be the lowest form of worship, but it's real worship. And it's the beginning of wisdom. And fear, if it matures, well, that becomes awe. We begin to realize how big God is and how small we are. That same idea of God working to open the eyes of the people is uh, repeated at the end of the chapter in verse 18 when Solomon says, I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them. And I just want you to know that Hebrew word means something like he, he kind of purifies their minds so that they can truly, truly or really understand reality, right? But he does this so that they may see that they are like the animals. Well, well, like the animals. There's a whole passage through verse 21, which we're not going to read, is about God working to reveal something important, that human beings have no advantage over animals. We have, both have physical life. We both die. Life speeds by. And our bodies finally return to dust. And then when that happens, we can't even tell what happens after that. That is without God in our life. God in our life changes everything. So I just want to tell you where we've been so far, okay? He designed our world so that there are different seasons that come into our lives and into the lives of of people around us. They come upon all human beings, not every kind, not to every person, not even to every uh, generation, but they come with regularity. And it's God's work, and we can't change that, but he has a purpose to open our eyes so we can see and to understand how great God is and how small we are. And we ought to thank God that it's so. Now Solomon mentions one other thing, uh, one other way in which we can go off the tracks. Uh, it's not the uh, only other way uh, that we can lose our way, but it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, he thought of the, this different thing because his thoughts right now brought it to his mind. Solomon understands uh, something that we sometimes forget, or maybe we don't even know. Solomon came to understand with his heart and his head that Judgment Day is coming. He first mentioned it in verse 15, which we already read, but, but I didn't read the whole thing, so I want to read that whole verse right to you, with, to you right now. Listen. Whatever has already been, uh, whatever is has already been, and what has been will be bef- uh, what has been before will be now. And God will call the past into account. 
That's the partnership. God will call the past into account. Some of your versions may read, God will seek the past or chase the past, but the NIV's translation it makes the most sense. It fits the context. God seeks the past in order to bring it to account. And, you know, human beings tend to think that evil people get away with the evil things that they've done. But Solomon is teaching us, he's reminding us that God will call the past into account. Now, I want you to look with me in verses 16 and 17. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was, wickedness was there. So it is way too often we've seen that in our own time. But I want to tell you something. No one ever gets away with anything. Why are you awake out there? It's true. No one ever gets away with anything. Either you come to God for forgiveness or you will come under his judgment. Verse 17 says, I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, uh, a time to judge every deed. There is a time and a season for everything, even God's judgment. We don't have a say in when that will be, but that it will be is certain. And yet that's the thing, it frustrates us that the wicked seem to get away with their wickedness. And so we need Solomon's reminder. And when the wicked prosper, it's often a kind of stumbling block to the faithful. A good illustration of that seen in Psalm 73. Would you let me read that to you? It'll be up on the screen. This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. And surely I, in vain, I've kept my heart pure and I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. I look at how this righteous man begins to stumble because of the wicked seemingly going unchecked while he seems uh, to, to have such a much harder go of it. But he continues, he said, if I had spoken like that, I would have betrayed your children. He almost began, he almost began, he didn't, but he almost began to complain out loud, to grumble against God, which itself would have been a stumbling block to others. But that isn't the end of the matter. He goes on to say, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me you troubled deeply by the things you see going on in our world? Does it bother you that the wicked seem to prosper and seem to get away with it? Well, listen to what he says next. It bothered me until I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. A few verses later, he says, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. See, he understood. And he wouldn't have traded his lot for that of the wicked for any amount of money or fame power because judgment day is coming seasons in life which we don't control things don't happen randomly they all happen with a purpose
purpose. God has designed our world to point us toward him. And we need to remember, and nobody gets away with anything, judgment day's coming. We ought to thank God that it's so. We ought to thank God that he is in control. Now, let's step one back just for a moment and say we talked about a lot of kind of negative stuff, I think, right? And, and I think all of it can affect us negatively. And, and as I said, happiness is not always possible. It's not always even appropriate, but joy is. And, and yet such things, if we're, if we're unaware of what God is doing, it can steal away our joy. So how do we live? in the seasons of life. What should we do? What does wisdom say about this? What did Solomon learn uh, from all his avoidable, and they were truly avoidable, but what did he learn from all of that foolishness? Well, it's already been pretty clear that we can't get any lasting happiness by trying to go on our own way. And, and, And that God has designed our world so that if we live our lives, if we live our lives Uh, on his terms, we're going to find lasting joy and happiness will fill much of our days of our life. The last time we were together, uh, we learned from Solomon that God has so designed life that the best thing we can do is to enjoy good company of people and to discover the joy of the work, the honorable work that God has done. He he says the same thing again in this this chapter. He he says what he does toward the middle of our passage to give people a hint of what's coming. I'm putting it at the end so that we're pointed in the right direction when we're leaving here. And what does he have to say? Verse 9, he asks the same question as before. What do workers gain from their toil? And if you remember, Solomon's answer was nothing unless God is in your life. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to tell us in verse 10 about the task which God has given humankind. I have seen the burden that God has laid on human race. In a sense, it's a burden. It's something that we have to carry. But maybe a better translation is that God has given human beings something they need to do to embrace, to understand. It's kind of like a task. It's his design. It's his purpose. It's for all people. And verse 11, I love this passage. It tells us the parameters of that task. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. And yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Solomon is telling us in God's own timing, he will make everything beautiful. He's telling us that deep down in our hearts, in our inner beings, we know there is a forever coming. And yet, we still, even when we take those uh, truths to heart, and we should take them to heart, we still don't know how everything will work out, how things are going to unfold. Because the seasons of life come upon us all. And they are out of our control. The only way to live life in light of that is to trust God. And we're brought back to that truth over and over again. Without God, there is no gain in this life. And the life we live now will flash by. Like the twinkle of your eye. 
spark at the end of a spark plug. So we need to trust God. And in the meantime, Solomon repeats his earlier advice, but he adds to it. I want you to listen to what he says. I know there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is a gift from God. See, the teacher knows there's no better activity for those who know him than to enjoy God's good, good gift to us, to be happy when we can, <laughs> to enjoy the company of good people that God puts in your life, to, to discover the work and the joy and the work that you have done, the honorable work that you've done, to, and which advances his kingdom. And that friendship, that fellowship of good people God put in your life is one of those great pleasures of life. You know those times, don't you? You know those times when it's getting late, you're with your friends, and it's late, and, and all the food is gone, and, and the talk is kind of winding down, and all the jokes old and new have been already told, and yet, and yet, you don't want to leave. That's what God wants to give us, every one of us. And then for us to realize that if even a slave can find satisfaction in their work because they're doing it for Christ, it'll help us to remember and appreciate that although some jobs are hard and not every job is suitable for every person, work was originally God's blessing to his people. It wasn't a result of the fall. It was given to mankind, humankind, before sin ever entered our world. But I want to ask you, did you notice what he added to that? I mean, we've already seen that. We looked at that last time, but did you notice what he added to that? He said we should do good. <laughs> See, God has blessed us with such good things in our life, which, which are available to all his people. So we ought to do good. We ought to pass the blessing around. We ought to share the bounty. There are people around you who are in a hard season of their life. They're in a place right now where they can't even imagine having happiness anymore. And joy has fled away from them. Everything to them seems dark. But you, you stand in the light. You can help. You can reach out to people like that. You can do good. You can't fix their heartache. You don't have the answers to their problems any more than they do. But your answers aren't what they need. They need the goodness of God, which can flow through you. You can come alongside of them. You can walk with them through the valley. You can bring them into your home to enjoy the good company of God's good people for a little while. There's still no room in their life for happiness, but for a little while they'll have a, res a respite. They'll have a rest from their sorrow. For a little while they'll know peace. Not all the seasons which come upon people are so dark. I know that. Sometimes people are just lonely. Or maybe they have lost their sense of direction. Maybe, maybe they're, they're just overwhelmed by life in general. Sometimes the good company, God's good people, can make all the difference in the world. 
Christianity is a happy religion. Not all the time. A lot of heartaches that have come our way. Joy is always available, so we can't always even rise to that. It's a happy religion. God wants you to enjoy the good things that he gives you in this life, but he wants you to share it with others. For the days of doldrum and sorrow will come upon you too. And in those days, you too will be glad for God's good people who look for ways to do good to you. Christianity isn't about doing and not doing as much as it is about relationship and loving God and loving other people. I don't see how it gets any simpler than that. And yet it can take up our whole life and fill our whole life with God's good things, with his joy, with his presence, with his peace. Are you smiling? Isn't it good? Isn't God good? Oh, yeah, that's it. Preasy, brother. Amen. (laughs) Wonderful. God bless you. I love you guys so very much. God put that love in me. Uh, He loved me first. And and because of that, I love you. I just want the best for you. I want you to go from here. Enjoy God's life that he's given you. Make a difference in this world. Man, make a difference. Bring as many people with you as you can as we make our way to heaven and to his kingdom. In Jesus' name. Let's stand.